You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Its meaning comes right after it. It's used here by Quohelet to challenge his audience to consider the entirety of life um, and to consider God's sovereign providence. So as he talks about all of that, he's, he's reflecting on God's sovereign providence. Uh, then Quohelet continues to unpack some grand questions that he's had throughout the beginning, and that's um, what's, like, what's life's meaning, and how do we gain satisfaction, and how do we gain enjoyment, and we see that it's only found when we're rooted in a relationship with God. So open up your Bibles today. We're, like I said, we're in Ecclesiastes. Um, kids, if you need a handout, if you guys didn't get one, put your hand up. Dean will bring you a handout if you got missed. Adults, if you want one to keep track as well, feel free to put your hand up. Um, if you need a Bible as well, there's one in front of you guys. Grab that in the pew. If you need a Bible and it's not there for you, put your hand up and Dean will bring you one as well. So here we go. I'm going to read chapter 3. I'm going to stop here at verse 10. We're going all the way through 15 today, but we're going to take this just in chunks so we can keep it uh, at the front of our mind. Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Let me pray for us today. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, We thank you for bringing us here today as a family. We thank you for this family Sunday. We can all be here standing under your word, God. We pray that the Holy Spirit would unveil to us what you have in the scriptures, that he would tear the stone off our hearts and soften our hearts to hear God's word today. And I pray that we could leave here with a piece of wisdom that we can take to guide our week and some words that would draw us closer to you, Father, in relationship. Uh, Be among us today, Father. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. (coughs) All right. So I called this first section God's Divine Poetry. So kids, I'm sorry. I hate to make this feel like language arts class on a Sunday. 
I know it's not great doing schoolwork on the weekends, but what we're going to do is start with a couple of definitions to lay out our text today. Uh, so when we look at the definition of a word, we want to look at what's the biblical definition of a word. We don't want to look at what does Webster's or what does the world, how do, how do they define the world, what does the government define our words as. We want to look at the context that it has in the Bible and what it means. Uh, in church and in Christian circles, we, we tend to sometimes have unique languages. We call this Christianese sometimes, you can hear it called as that. Uh, but we're going to take a look at two words today, sovereign and providence. So the biblical definition of sovereign, as in the Lord is sovereign, uh, referring to God, it is his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. So I repeat, it's his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. That's God's sovereignty. And then the word providence. Providence literally means foresight, to see ahead, to, to know what's coming ahead is generally used to denote God's preserving and governing of all things. So when we look at this, the little title that I've crafted for us today, God's sovereign providence, when we put them together, this literally means that it's God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure to preserve and govern all things. God is the creator. He, he is our ruler. It's his right to do all these things. And when we say all things, we mean everything. So I'm, I'm talking about the natural word, world. We're talking about he's over creation. He's over the affairs of people collectively. He's over the affairs of people individually. And this includes both sin and good actions. I'm not saying that God approves of sin, but it's right to say that God is over sin because he's sovereign in it. It doesn't mean that he allows it. It means that he can overrule it. He can overrule it for good. It also means that he can limit it and he can restrain it. So let's understand that God is sovereign over these things. He is the Almighty, and these, these facts should bring us to stand or bow down in reverence of him always. He is the creator, and we are the created. Let's not get that mixed up ever. Otherwise, we're going to end up frustrated and tired of trying to herd the wind and control life, just like we see Kohelet doing uh, in his frustrations of trying to wrap his head around all this. So bring us back into the text. Verse 1 points out to us that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So let's look at this in verse 1. The word season here marks different events in life that are not subject to chance. So when we talk about God's sovereignty and his providence, it's, it's right here in verse 1. Man's wisdom would tell us that these seasons, our flows of life, what happens to us is subject to chance. That life comes at us and we take it and we deal with it and we move on and, and we're just, what, who knows what's going to happen next. That's man's wisdom. Uh, that's, that's not what we're seeing here in God's word. Let's consider his providence and we'll see that man's wisdom, again, is not true. So if you look closer into other texts, Solomon realizes this fact, that God is over these things, by the word he uses, the Hebrew word is zaman, meaning that there's a set time or an appointed time. So the season he talks about 
is a set time. There's a set time for everything in life. See, in Ezra 10 is, a, is a, another use of this word saying, let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. And then also in Nehemiah, he says that he established the work of the priests and the Levites in Jerusalem and that he provided for the wood offering at appointed times. That's in Nehemiah 13. Uh, so what we see here is that these seasons, these times in our lives, are not by chance. We don't believe in luck. They're not chance. But rather, they are divinely timed for our good and for his glory. Those are the events of our life. They are divinely timed for our good and for his glory. So let's look again at this poetry, and we'll dig a little deeper into, into the layout of this. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. So a lot of ink has been spilled about, about this poetry used here, and there, there really are a lot of complexities to it, but we're going to try to boil it down uh, to some of the most important parts here. Uh, if you want to get the full story, you, you come on by to my house afterwards. We'll sit down, we'll have coffee, we'll, we'll chat about it. It'll be great. Um, but let's sum it up. So in verses 2 and 3 here, what we see is that the, the most obvious thing is that we have a comparison. So whenever we see a comparison in the Bible, we kind of look at what it's comparison. Do we have positives? Do we have negatives? What do we have? Um, so we see that here there's a major contrast. He's talking about a time to be born and a time to die. Uh, so for us English majors in here, or for kids who enjoy literary devices and poetry, this is called a marismus. So it's not super important to know that, but if you want to wow someone with a bit of information, this is a marismus. Um, what it does is it's a, it's a literary device to show that two contrasting items that are a full extent actually show that it is all-inclusive. So when he talks about a time to be born and a time to die here, he's talking about all of life. You see this in Psalm 139, the psalmist used it. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So what the psalmist is doing, he's declaring that the Lord is everywhere. So first we have two pairs of contrasts, and it's a complete summation of life, birth and death. And then we have to plant and to pluck, very similar. Um, the contrast shows a complete picture from beginning until end of life. None of this is subject to chance either. This is sovereign timing. A child doesn't choose when they want to be born. They don't choose when their birthday is. God chooses. That happens. You don't choose when you're going to die. God chooses when you're going to die. That's him. It's, it's all under his sovereignty. Same as a seed. A seed doesn't plant itself. God chooses when that seed is to be planted. It's all under an authority. Uh, but basically, in the first pairs, we have describing the most momentous events in human life, birth and death. And then the next three, we have some creative and destructive human events. Uh, verse 4, we see it deals with human emotions. So first we see private emotions, to weep and to laugh. And then next we see more public emotions, to mourn and to dance. Verse 5, there's two pairs of contrasts that deal with friendship and enmity. Or more plainly said, it is our relationships. 
Um, now, verse 5a, the first, first one there, to cast away stones and to gather stones. Uh, tons of commentaries on this one. But I think it's most widely accepted and said that to cast away stones is to actually clear a field of stones for, for crops or for planting or to produce food and, and sustainability. And to gather stones is an act of war or an act against uh, somebody else. So it's not friendship, it's enmity, where you would chuck a bunch of stones into their field and you would ruin their field. It's no longer good soil. Um, and then we have a time to embrace and then a time to refrain. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can jot down 1 Corinthians 7.5. Paul summed it up really, really well there. Verse 6, we now have two pairs of contrasts that deal with our possessions and what to do with them. Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. And last in verse 7 and 8, these contrasts deal with uh, essentially mourning and then the termination or the end of mourning periods. So we have a time to tear and a time to sow. Uh, that's, that imagery brings us to Old Testament when you're tearing your clothes. Uh, when kings were, were mad or they were lamenting, you would tear your clothes. You have a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Kids, now I'm sorry, this is going to be math class. So who said there was math in the Bible, hey? <laughs> um, if you were to count these, you have 28 life events or seasons that are described here. And each one has a pair or a contrast. So half of 28 is, anybody? 14? Okay, 14. Sorry, I should have let you say it. 14 is a multiple of sevens. Now, Anytime we see seven in the Bible, what seven represents is, is perfection or completeness. So in, in the tactful use of all of these comparisons, 28, 14 comparisons, seven by seven, you have God describing the entirety of life, the completeness of life, its emotions, the possessions, enmity, friendship, war, life, death, everything is in here. Um. So in all of this, in this completeness, in this perfection, we can actually see that there is a time for everything. There are seasons of life, and none of it's by our choosing. They just come at us. Um. Did anyone try to make sense of any of these contrasts as they were laid out to? Did it, did it seem like there was a flow to it, or were they kind of all over the place? You're not wrong if you think that they're all over the place. There isn't really much of a flow to them. And I think Kohelet has used that in a way to describe to us as well that we don't know what life is going to bring us. There is no perfect layout for life. There's what we think is going to happen, but under God's sovereign providence, we don't know what is going to happen. That's for him to know. Um, it's unorganized. There's no rhyme or reason. You, you don't wake up and say, I am going to laugh for four days. Uh, and for two days, I'm going to cry and I'm going to mourn. And then I'm going to do like three months of just easy living. We're just going to love for three months. We, we don't do that. We don't know what life has to bring us. 
Um, some people are born into war-torn countries and they will never see peace for years. That's not by their choice. Uh, some people are born, they laugh, they love, they live, they're planted in an area, and then they die. We don't know what life has for us. Solomon here is describing that we don't know. It's, we're out of control of it. That's what we've been seeing this whole way through. I think most of you guys know my family story here. We, we sold our house in Airdrie and we came looking for land. I've, I've probably approached probably a quarter of you guys seeing if you want to buy land with us. Like we're after land. But we, we don't know what the Lord has for us. Um, uh, we were hoping for land, and, and some days it's frustrating, the search. Some days it's, it's uh, we rest in the Lord, we're, we're rested, and some days it's just simply not on our mind. Um, but what, what we can't lose sight of as a family is that our primary purpose is not to seek land and be planted. Our primary purpose is to glorify him above all else and to walk faithful, faithfully with him to walk faithfully with each other and to teach our kids to love and trust in the Lord Jesus with all their hearts, minds, and souls. Uh, no matter what comes at us in life, we, we can't miss our primary purpose in life, and that's to glorify him above all else. So let's look back here at verse 9 and 10 as, as we try to seep out some of the main points here. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So what's, what's Kohelet's real point here? Why do you use this poetry? And why again did anyone pick out that we're hearing the same question that we've heard twice before already? The same rhetorical question? What gain has a worker from his toil? <clears throat> if you notice, he circles back to this rhetorical question to bring out a point, And it comes right after it again. That point's simple, and it's been stated through this book in its entire first two chapters. Uh, everything that we face and everything that we have, everything that we do is from the hand of God. The language here that Solomon has is showing his frustration in this. He's a man who's gained all this wealth and everything, and, he, and he's frustrated just with the fact that he can't puff himself up over it. It is from the hand of God. So contrast this frustration with someone who's given their life over to God and trusts in him and walks faithfully in him. This news that it's all God's is from him should be reassuring to us as believers to know that everything unfolds according to his providence. That should be reassuring to us as believers. Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this also refers back to last week when we were talking about the one who pleases God and the sinner. Again, we have a contrast there. One receives wisdom and knowledge and joy, and the other receives busy, empty, meaningless work, which will leave them unsatisfied and, just, and looking for more answers. And look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Like, don't be fooled, church. This business that is given is not pleasing work. 
the, the whole sentence following the rhetorical question is negative, it's depressing, its tone is low, busy work. Solomon has witnessed backbreaking labor. He's witnessed busy work. Solomon himself knows this because he's delivered busy work. He's had his house built. He's had the temple of God built. He's had gardens built. He's had walls built. He's built everything up around him. It wasn't him personally. He was delivering work, labor. And this, this whole sentence runs familiar in my mind as I was wrestling through it because it, it should be familiar with us. Let's look all the way back to Genesis 3. We'll read Genesis 3, 17 and 19, or 17 through 19. <clears throat> and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has given us all of life outside of Eden and under the sun. So let's carry on verse 11 through 13 here. And here we see a little bit about how God's created us, what he's put in us. This is God's divine creation. That's us. When I was looking at the poetry and wrestling, or sorry, let's read it. <laughs> he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that, so, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So when I was wrestling through this poetry and reading through it, I couldn't help but to notice that in some of these as well, there's both a positive and a negative to some of these events of life. Um, and this is, this is kind of what he means by that when he says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. So if you look back at that list of events of, of life, you look back at it and, and there's both a positive and negative to each one of those events. Uh, sometimes it is hard for us to realize how something like killing or war or being uprooted from where you're planted is and how that can be positive. But when we remember that everything is ordained by God himself, we see that it is truly being done under his providence and by his divine sovereignty. So this is, this is how Kohelet deals with his frustrated heart as he looks at the world and its events and he surely can't make sense of it all. And, and if Solomon, who is the wisest man other than Jesus to walk the earth, couldn't 
couldn't deal with it all or couldn't bring it all to make sense, um, like, how are we supposed to? <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit, praise God, to, uh, who will reveal things to us as he chooses. But, but also, let's look at how we've been created. Let's look at verse 11 here. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we've been given by God an eternal view in our hearts. Uh, this, is, this is best described as a, a desire to make sense of the world. It's, it's, it's a desire to see life in its eternity, to understand everything, to know the plan that God has. If you read through the Psalms and the Proverbs and you keep Job in mind, or, and read through Job and you keep this thought in mind that we want to see the whole picture, we want to understand it all, we want to see God's justice, we want to see his righteousness, and we want to see the way we want to see it everywhere, the way we think it should be. Um, it can be confusing because it doesn't always turn out the way that we expect it to. So what do we do with that when it gets confusing like that? Well, we're not going to be able to make sense of it because, one, we're not perfect. Like we're, and we're not privy to know that. God has put eternity in your hearts, but he, he's made it so that we can't understand from the beginning to the end. We're not God. We are not the creator. Again, we are the created. We don't know what he knows. We don't do what he does. We wouldn't be able to handle it in our mortal bodies. So as an example, take, take for example, your your occupation or your hobby or something that you love to do. Um, you can spend years and decades trying to know everything there is about to know that, in that one occupation. Uh, if you want to be a metal worker, you're going to spend your whole career trying to learn about metal and be the best that you, you can be. If you're a mechanic, you're going you're to work at being the best mechanic. But even at that, it's all going to fall short of knowing everything. The metal worker isn't going to know what the mechanic knows. And the mechanic isn't going to know how to work on every single car. We don't know everything in eternity. Our, our minds are limited. God's mind is not limited. God knows everything. He designed all of this. He knows everything about everything, and he's the best at it. So kids, help me out here. What do we call it? What do we call the character of God that describes how he knows everything? That's right. Thank you. Omniscient. God is omniscient. He is, and we are not. He is the creator, and we are the created. So let's look at Kohelet's response as he's, as he's realizing this. Um, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So this same conclusion out of his frustration was made in last week in verses 24, chapter 2, 24. And I pointed out this great refrain that's going to ring over and over and over again, like the chorus to a hymn. This is the second time that we're seeing this refrain, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all of his toil, that this is God's gift from man. And we're going to see this a few more times. We're going to see about three or four more times. Believers, life, 
lived apart from our Creator is vanity. There is nothing for us in a life apart from the Creator, outside of our relationship with the Creator. But when we come to Him, when we attribute everything to Him and praise Him for His wonderful, perfect, and kind gifts, we are able to make sense of life just a little bit more. My children this semester have been working to commit John 15, 1 through 11, to memory and bless their little hearts. They finished it last week, um, but their poor old dad didn't fare the same way, so I need my Bible with me. Um, Turn with me to John 15. We're going to read John 15, 5 through 11. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's no way that our joy can be full outside of a relationship with God. We can have joy and we can have some satisfaction, but those things are are fleeting. They're going to disappear. They're going to leave us. When it's founded in our Creator, our joy is full. The ability to live in Him and to work under His sovereignty, this truly is a blessed gift from God. This is God's gift to man. Kids, do you want to hear a little bit of the, the, uh, the nugget that we unpacked last week? A little important part to take away with you, the key to life, we could say. It's fear God and obey his commandments. Live a life according to him and praise him for his constant goodness over your life. Because like it says in John 15, just like we read, apart from him, you can do nothing. So trust in him. Submit to him, love him because he is just and he is faithful to love you and he will constantly care for you. It's for the kids, but that's for everybody. (laughs) So let's carry on to verse 14. We'll see if we can wrap today up uh, faster than 55 minutes like I did last week, sorry. So here we have God's redemption. Let's turn back to Ecclesiastes. We'll read 14 and 15. Chapter 3, 14 and 15. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. 
God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Kohelet starts another statement here with the words, I perceived. It perked up my interest. I had to look like, why is he used perceived? He used it two verses ago. Uh, perceived is something that is fact. He doesn't observe it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't think it to be true. Perceived is that he knows something to be true. So he says this with assurance. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. It reminded me of, of Revela- the end of Revelation. Like Nothing can be added to this. Nothing can be taken from it. This is our authority. Whatever God does endures forever. He's showing a complete acceptance and understanding that we humans are the created. Solomon is the created. He's nothing divine over God because he's been given great wisdom. He is still a created. We cannot change what God has purposed. We can't herd the wind, and we can't add a single day to our lives by worrying about anything. What God does stands forever, and he does everything in his sovereign providence. He is in total and complete control. When I was reading through the commentaries, the author John Curid, uh, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, A Quest for Meaning, explained these verses so well that I, I had to quote it. So listen as I read it to you. This verse tells us three things about God's sovereignty. First, it is perpetual. That means it is eternal. As the prophet Isaiah declares, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's Isaiah 40. Second, his work is perfect. Nothing can be or needs to be added to it or taken from it. And finally, his work is purposeful. The truth of the sovereignty of God drives people to their knees in awe and wonder, and this leads to their obedience. In verse 15, Solomon affirms the truth of the sovereignty of God. He declares that what is happening in the present already has been. This means that the present is unfolding according to God's will and the plan that was set from the foundation of the world. And then that which will happen in the future, it already has been. It too will unfold according to God's foreordination or to his providence, his foreknowledge. <clears throat> so kids, that should be the end of your fill-in sheet. Hang with me here. Let's listen in as we, as we land this plane again. So not to beat a dead horse, but God does this to bring us to a reverent fear of him. His sovereign providence is to bring us to a reverent fear of him. We talked about this last week, kids, what it means to fear him. Okay, so listen up. We're... We're not driven to a fear as in, or this fear isn't describing a fear that is like, I'm afraid to go down this bike trail or, or I'm afraid to, to walk into the forest or I need my bedroom door open at night because I'm a little bit afraid. This fear is different. This is a reverent fear that we're talking about here, kids. It's a fear that should drive us to kneel down in awe of who God, our creator, is. So I said this last week and I have to repeat myself 
To fear him means to revere him, to be afraid, to stand in awe of him or be awed, to honor him, to know that he is a sovereign creator of all things and that he holds eternity in his hands. Be astonished by him. That's what it means to fear him. So church, how are we doing with this since last week? Did we take time to bow down in reverence of him? Were we on our knees praying to him, knowing and trusting that it's only him who can make a difference in anything that we're going through or we're experiencing? Have you taken time to pray for other families in our church? Have you taken time to pray for John, Laura, and Owen? Do you know the Bedolkas from Calgary North? Take time to pray for them. They lost their child of 20 days old. But God is sovereign. Church, we need to be on our knees praying to the creator of all heavens and earth. If you don't know him and you're here today, turn to him. He is perfect. And he alone is the one who can redeem what's lost. Take a look at the very end of our text here, the end of chapter 15, or the end of verse 15. And God seeks what has been driven away. There's a few understandings of this, but the best one, the, the one that's most commonly understood, is that God seeks the persecuted, that which has been driven away. That's us, people. God is seeking us. We are the persecuted. It's, it's who's sitting next to you. It's your child beside you. It's your friend. It's your brother. It's your sister who's here. That's us. God is seeking us. It's our sisters and brothers at Calgary North. It's those at the churches in town here. It's Calgary South. It's Red Deer. It's Edmonton. Even if they're Oilers fans, they're still our family. <clears throat> so I'm going to leave us with a little bit of imagery to walk away with. And hopefully it kind of sums up uh, our relationship to the Father here. So parents, you best know your kids. You know their best interests, or you, you have their best interests in mind whenever you make decisions for them. And let's be honest, if we left it up to our children, what would their life look like? They'd, they would probably eat pizza, nachos, and cereal for like every meal of the day, and they'd have a tummy ache. And then after each meal, they'd probably eat like a nice healthy bowl of ice cream afterwards. Um, some days that sounds like my fire hall. <laughs> That's what they would do. They, they would stay up late. They wouldn't go to bed on time when you want them to. And, and they don't know that you have plans for them tomorrow. They don't know that you guys are going to a park or that you're going to travel or you're going to see your grandparents or you're going to something fun and they need their rest. They don't have the big picture in mind. They don't have their, their health or their best interests or what their mood is going to be like tomorrow in mind. But you do. You see the bigger picture. You know the plan. This is our relationship. This is a perfect picture of us and the Father. 
we, some days we can't see past our own two feet. We don't know the plan. We want to know the plan, but we, we just can't. The Father knows the plan for us. He knows what he has for each one of us here, and he calls us by name. We don't need to understand either. We can rest faithfully in him and praise him because he is good. He is the creator and we are not. Let's not get that mixed up ever. We're going to end up frustrated like Solomon is. Church, today is Communion Sunday. We're going to present the elements to us. Let's take time to set our relationship with the Father right. If you've reversed this order and you feel like the creator, not the created today, repent of that. Let's turn this around. Make yourself right with God before coming to his table. Search your heart and repent of your sins before him because he is our redeemer. Christ is our redeemer. Bow down to him, revere him, church. Thank you.